Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we invite you uh, into this place that you would speak to us for your honor. Lord, take us the next step with you. My prayer through Christ. Amen. Kind of curious, how many of you, it would be helpful to have a show of hands, how many of you were alive September 11th when terrorists, okay. Um, you remember, I'm sure, exactly where you were and what you were doing that day. <clears throat> I was in Chicago, I was in Naperville, Illinois for a church conference. I had just come inside from uh, a run. I, uh, the, the Today Show was on and we saw the first plane hit the tower. Um, that night, we had actually planned, uh, after the conference, there were some of us that were talking about going to see a Cubs game at Wrigley Field. I've kept this a secret most of my life. I'm a big baseball fan, and so I was really, yeah, that's not a secret, that's sarcasm. Welcome to new life, if you are new here today. Um, the, uh, so I was really looking forward to going to Wrigley Field for the first time, and then the second plane hit, and we knew we were at war, and everything changed. All of a sudden, the conference didn't matter so much. All of a sudden, baseball didn't matter so much. Um, what did you want to do at that time? I I wanted to get on the phone and talk to my wife, and so I did once the lines cleared up enough. I wanted to, I wanted to talk to those who I love the most. Such were the instincts of the Apostle Paul as he writes the words that we are about to give attention to today in 2 Timothy. The year is about 66, 67 uh, you know, AD 66, 67, Paul sits in a damp Roman cell. Nero ascends to the throne when he is a teenager. This is about 12 years after, 13 years after, uh, and he has gradually descended into madness. He's lost popularity, and so doing what politicians often do when they're losing popularity, they attack the people who, the group that is unpopular, and the unpopular group at that point, like politicians today, he attacks Christians. He says, Christians are the enemy of the state. He arrests Peter, and now he arrests Paul, and Paul sits in this jail awaiting execution. Sensing the urgency of the moment, Paul writes to Timothy, verse 6, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is reserved for me that crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who've longed for his appearing. And then he has in verse 9, make every effort to come to me soon. The signs of the changing seasons are clear. The days are getting shorter. The trees outside Paul's cell are changing. Soon those leaves which were once green will shed their colors to orange and maroon and amber. Those trees that were once filled with leaves will lay bare as those leaves blanket the earth. So as Paul writes, he's keenly aware that this day not only welcomes the fall of the year but the autumn of his life. Again, his intensity could not be more clear. Verse 9, make every effort to come to me soon. He continues in verse 10, because Demas has deserted me since he loved this present world. He's gone to Thessalonica. Christkin has gone to Galatia, 
Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. It's always sad to hear those words. Everybody's gone their different ways, but good old Luke, his friend, is still with him. Verse 11, bring Mark with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. I've sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak I left in Troas with Carpus, as well as the scrolls, especially the parchments. If there's one word we would use to describe Paul in this moment, and actually throughout his life, it's the word intense. Paul is like that basketball player in overtime, knowing the championship is on the line. He's exhausted, doesn't have a whole lot left, but he is going to give his best until the final horn sounds. And so he wants to be surrounded by those things and those people that matter most. Timothy, bring my scrolls, because very, to the very end, Paul is a learner. He is personally a disciple to hear God's voice and follow. Timothy, bring my parchments, because to the end, Timothy is a servant. And he knows that even in prison, he can serve as he writes and encourages and admonishes. And then he makes this most practical request, bring my cloak. Evidently, this is Paul's only coat. Many times I've thought, if only this coat could talk, the stories it would tell of Paul preaching in front of the, of the masses in Ephesus and creating a riot later on, of speaking, teaching before the leading philosophers of his day in Athens, Athens is recorded in Acts 17, being beaten and left for dead in Derby. Stories of shipwrecks and snake bites, miraculous healings. One writer describes Paul's coat. It had been wet with the brine of the Mediterranean, whitened with the snows of Galatia, yellowed with the dust of the Ignatian Way, stained crimson with the blood of Paul's own wounds for the sake of Christ. Now the days will be growing shorter and colder in Rome, and one more time, Paul longs to be warmed by that old coat. More than anything, Paul wants Timothy to bring himself so interesting to me that when Paul ends, Paul's life is ending, he goes back to thinking about people, even Demas, who has deserved me. Demas, who was that close friend who, who worked with him in the faith and the church for a while, but now Demas has loved the world and has no time for Christ. Make every effort to come to me soon, he says in verse 9, as though to make sure his request is clear. He repeats himself just a few verses later. Verse 11, make every effort to come before winter. It is as though Paul has had a premonition. He understands Nero's desperation. He knows that once Timothy receives this letter, there will be a brief window of opportunity in which to respond. If Timothy acts decisively, he will be able to make it in time. If not, the navigational season in the Mediterranean will close. He will wait and have to wait until springtime. And Paul has a real clear sense that he will not make it to see another spring. So for Timothy, it is come before winter or don't come at all. The challenge for Timothy is the challenge for us all, is it not? October 18th, 1915, a preacher in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania by the name of Clarence McCartney 
preached a sermon on this topic from this passage. The church was so moved by it that his elders asked him to preach it again the next year and then the next and then the next. And so he did it for, the, for 37 straight years. In the fall, he would preach this message. I first heard a version of it when I was in college. One of my professors preached a version of this message in this text. So since new life began, I thought, what a great idea. If you can't think of good ideas of your own, steal other people's good ideas, you know? At least give them a little credit. And so every other year or so, we come back to this passage because so often we need to be encouraged to appreciate the preciousness of the now. Another of my mentors in college, Roy Mays, taught us the verse in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Lord, help us to number our days, to be wise. As Clarence McCartney said so well, the winter will come and the winter will pass. And the flowers of springtime will again reclothe the earth and deck the graves of some of our finest lost opportunities, perhaps the graves of some of our closest friends. There are doors, golden doors of opportunity standing wide open to us this day that come winter will be forever shut. There are voices calling out loudly and distinctly this day that come next year will be forever silent. And so we return to Paul's cell and Timothy's side and again hear the voice of God calling each of us to take advantage of the preciousness of today. I would ask you, to write two words on your, uh, on a phone, on a piece of paper, I will. You don't have to do this. Nobody's going to grade you on doing this. Your life will just depend on it. The quality of your walk with God will depend on will you sit and listen and do nothing or will you hear God's voice calling you and come before winter? What action will you take? God's voice, first of all, calls Timothy to change before winter. The moment Timothy receives this letter from Paul, he faces a fork in the road. Will he be humble and listen or not? Appreciate Paul's voice for Timothy is not just any other voice. Paul has been Timothy's mentor through the years. Paul has been discipling Timothy many times. Paul's voice has been God's voice for Timothy to hear Paul's leadership has been to listen to God's word for Timothy. If Timothy humbles himself, he'll think, you know, maybe, maybe God's calling me to take some action here, to change my schedule, to make a change in my priorities. But if pride gets the best of him, he will rationalize. Paul's exaggerating. Paul doesn't understand. If Paul understood my situation as well as I understand my situation... Clarence McCartney tells of a man in a hotel room who'd been a slave to alcohol, had just started to be victorious over it when he was tempted once more. But before he could take action, he was confronted by this voice, this kind of inner voice that said, this is your hour. If you yield to temptation now, it will destroy you. If you conquer it now, it will master you forever. I'm sorry, you will master it forever. 
Refusing to yield, he broke its power. Clarence McCartney writes, this, is, this, man, this, was not, this man was not unique in his experience. For many a man or woman, there comes an hour when destiny knocks at the door. The angel waits to see whether you will obey him or reject him. These are the precious and critical moments in the history of the soul. We have a group of people that meet in, place in a group called Celebrate Recovery, and they will tell you this is so true. Be glad to have you join them on Fridays. Rich Mullins was one of our favorite Christian singers years ago. Um, he wrote the very popular song, Awesome God, Step by Step You Lead Me, other songs. One of his most popular songs was called Hold Me Jesus. I remember him telling the story behind this song. He said he was in Amsterdam one night, and in Amsterdam, he said, there was just so much sin around him. After years of behaving myself as best I could, he said, I was really having a hard time hanging on to purity and for my dear life. He says, I was just thinking no one would ever know. I could do anything that I wanted to. Wouldn't it be fun to cut loose for a couple of hours, for a couple of days, and misbehave and do whatever I want? Fortunately, he had a friend there with him, Dave Strasser, he called Beaker, um, who held him accountable. He did not give in to his temptation. Instead, he wrote a song that night describing his temptation. I wonder how many of us can re recognize or relate to this. Sometimes my life just don't make sense at all, he wrote. When the mountains look so big and my faith just seems so small, so hold me, Jesus, because I'm shaken like a leaf. You've been king of my glory. Won't you be my prince of peace? And I wake up in the night and feel the dark. It's so hot inside my soul. I swear there must be blisters on my heart. So hold me, Jesus. I'm shaken like a leaf. Later he writes, surrender don't come natural to me. I'd rather fight you for something I don't really want than take what you give that I need. And I've beat my head against so many walls, but now I'm falling down. I'm falling on my knees. So hold me, Jesus, because I'm shaking like a leaf. You've been king of, my, king of my glory. Won't you be my prince of peace? Rather than giving him to temptation that night, he listened to the Holy Spirit and he gave us a song that has been encouragement to many. Later on, a few days after that night, he was in an airport in Europe, and someone came up to him and said, I know you. Aren't you Rich Mullins? He wasn't so anonymous after all. The Bible tells us that God is the God of second chances, and he is, but don't think that his grace and salvation means you get a second chance at his blessing. Don't ever forget the people of Israel. They're standing on the very verge, on the edge of the promised land. God says, go in, take the promised land. Ten bad leaders say, oh, it's too big. Oh, there are giants in the land. We'll lose. Two faithful leaders. The minority says, Let's go, let's obey God. And that group listens to the majority, not the minority, and they die in the wilderness. They will spend the next 40 years in the wilderness wandering and they will never see the promised land. Because in that moment when they were caught at that fork in the road, they said no to God's voice. Today, if you hear God's voice, 
Understand we grow by obedience, not toward obedience. We grow by obeying and ending a bad habit and starting anew, accepting responsibility, go to counseling, say no to ungodliness, end the bad relationship, pray for your lost friends, share Christ, start to serve. These are the precious and critical moments in the history of the soul. I will. What are you writing down? Right now, if you write this down, God's voice is clear and definitive. But if you say no to God right now, it just gets easier to say no to him. And you've experienced it, perhaps, where his voice, which once was loud and distinct, fades to a whisper, and the voices of selfishness in this world dominate. Conviction ceases. The heart grows cold. If you hear God's voice to call you to change, come before winter. There's a Another voice of God that calls us, it's the voice of God that calls us to come to others before winter. We don't know exactly how Timothy responded once he got this letter. There's the one Timothy who, even though it is not easy, he responds immediately. He changes plans, cancels meetings, wastes no time traveling to Troas where he picks up the books and the old cloak with car- where Carpus is. Understand, (laughs) this would not have been easy for Timothy. But immediately he makes his way to Rome, races to the prison where Paul is being held, and the two share a rich reunion. Timothy gets to ask his questions. Paul gets to share his encouragement. Finally, that day arrives when the soldiers come to take Paul away. They exchange one final prayer. Paul says, Timothy, be strong in the Lord, in the power of his might. The guards bind Paul's hands behind him and lead him to the place of execution where Paul receives his eternal reward. And there stands Timothy. I'm sure tears in his eyes, but heart filled with gratitude that he had come before winter. There's another possibility, of course. This is the second Timothy, the well-intended Timothy. This is the Timothy who, when receives Paul's letter, is overwhelmed with responsibilities in Ephesus. It helps to understand Ephesus is a leading city and a leading church in that day. Ephesus is a church that Paul started Paul came back to, lived with, for, led for 30 years, for three years, I'm sorry, for three years, and then he hands it off, the leadership off to Timothy. And things are not settled in Ephesus. There's conflict in the church. There's, I mean, Ephesus is just filled with pagan worship. So Timothy receives Paul's letters, and it's kind of like, are you kidding? <laughs> You expect me to drop everything that is a priority and all these other things that I'm I'm supposed to be doing just to go to you? I will go after things settle. 
And so Timothy sets out for Rome eventually, only to be informed that the navigational season has closed. It is too dangerous to sail. He will have to wait until springtime. And if Timothy is like a lot of Christians today, he will rationalize, he will spiritualize, oh, it must just not have been God's will. No, Timothy, you just missed the opportunity that God gave you. Once winter passes, Timothy makes his way to Rome doesn't know where Paul is being held, goes to the house of somebody who's a follower of Christ, knocks on the door. I'm Timothy. I'm the one that Paul sent those letters to. I have some things here for Paul, but I don't know where he's being held. Is he being released? Oh, Timothy, I'm so sorry to have to tell you this. They executed Paul about a month ago. We can show you the place where he's buried out by the Ossian way. But Timothy, Paul spoke so often of you. He cared so deeply for you. In fact, among some of his last words were words for you. He said, encourage Timothy to fight the good fight, to finish the race, keep the faith when he comes. And there stands Timothy in that doorway with books in his hands that Paul will never read, a coat under his arm that Paul will never wear, words of affection in his heart that Paul will never hear. How that Timothy would spend the rest of his life regretting that he had not come before winter. Teach us to number our days aright, O Lord, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Can you identify with each Timothy? Young parents, do you ever hear the voice of God calling you to your children while there's time before winter? We've all heard it said that children grow up so fast, doesn't last. Children call us, Dad, would you sit down with me? Mom, will you read with me? Mom, will you watch this with me? Dad, would you play ball with me? And so often the temptation is to say, later. My, um, my wife's a great mom. Her kids know they're loved. And one reason is because she cared around this poem that gave her perspective. Cleaning and scrubbing can wait till tomorrow. For babies grow up, we've learned to our sorrow. So quiet down, cobwebs, dust, go to sleep. I'm rocking my baby because babies don't keep. Parents, listen, we live in an age where we expect to be able to pay other people to do our jobs. We pay other people to raise our kids. We pay coaches to teach, our, teach them sports, pay tutors to teach them instruments, We pay taxes expecting them to be educated by the state. Sometimes we pay the church expecting them, the church will grow them spiritually. But God did not entrust your child to the school board or the state or even the church to raise. Deuteronomy 6 makes it very clear, parents, you 
and I, as parents, are responsible to teach our children to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are to educate them as they rise and as they go to bed and as they walk along the road. We are the ones who are entrusted to lead them to obey God fully, to find their identity in God alone to pursue his purposes for their lives. Every day our children call out to us, mom and dad, come before winter while the cement is still soft and still can be formed. Will you read them the Bible? Will you, will you make church and worship a priority? Will you make them part of the, we have such a great youth ministry here with John and, and what he's doing. Have you heard the voice of your parents calling come before winter? How quickly our parents grow old and pass. Young adults, it is so easy for you to get caught up in your own jobs, raising your own family, that you neglect your own parents. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, if anybody does not provide for his own family, especially for his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In a world that worships the state, people say it takes a village to be the family. The Bible says you're worse than an atheist if you believe that. Listen, it is not the government's responsibility to take care of your family. The government did not give you birth. The government did not change your diapers. The government did not hold your hand when you had fever in the middle of the night. The government did not pray for your salvation in Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us it is a sacrilege to abdicate that responsibility to the state or to others. It is worse than being an unbeliever, the Bible says. It is not compassionate as much as Satan wants you to think. You pay taxes so the government will take care of your kids and your family. Does anybody today hear your parents calling you to come before winter? Maybe it's just a call every week. Maybe it's a visit even though it's inconvenient and the kids don't want to. Maybe it's to sacrifice your own finances, even your own retirement finances to take care of your parents in their old age. I, um, <laughs> there are many things I regret in life. One thing I'm very thankful for is that I live in a family that has loved parents and grandparents and taken care, taking care of them. How sad it is for others who go to the grave of their parents, either having to suppress their, their guilt feelings over not being responsible or they don't suppress it and they just feel awful for having missed a multitude of opportunities for kindnesses left undone and good words left unsaid. Our spouses call us to come before winter, do they not? Thomas Carlyle was a giant in the field of literature. Today, he's still known as an historic figure in writing. But his story of his wife is that his wife contracted cancer, it developed slowly, but Carlyle was so absorbed in his work that he pushed her continue, to continue working 
for several weeks after she became ill. Finally, she was confined to the bed, and Carlisle intended to spend more time with her, but the time was never found, and then she died, and after the funeral, he left the grave in the rain, returning home deeply shaken. It is said he climbed the stairs to her room and sat in the chair next to her bed, listening to the rain fall outside, regretting how little time he had spent with her during her illness. Beside the bed, he noticed her diary. He picked it up, began to read. Gently turning the pages, one sentence jumped out. Yesterday, she had written, he spent an hour with me, and it was like being in heaven. I love him so. Carlyle's heart sank, and then he turned another page. The next sentence he read, I have listened all day for his steps in the hall, but now it's late. I guess he won't come today. One page after another crushed him until finally he threw down the diary, rushed to the cemetery, threw the rain, fell on his knees, and wept by her grave. My grandparents were married 72 years, and my grandfather lived with us the last months of his life, and there's a couple things I learned from my grandfather. First of all, it was how deeply he really loved my grandmother, and second, how deeply he regretted not being a better husband. My grandfather at 96 would sit at my table and weep that he, over the opportunities, he would talk about specifically opportunities he had missed to be a more loving husband. There's another group that calls us, another voice that calls us to come before winter, and that's the voice of lost friends and family. The Bible tells us that Jesus wept over Jerusalem because they were like sheep without a shepherd. It tells us he wept over Galilee, northern area, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Next week, we're going to start a series of messages on friends because in a culture of individualism, we've lost the art of friendship. But it's also to give, and we need to do better at being friends with each other in our, in our, in our groups and caring for each other and nurturing each other. But it's also because we have friends who don't know Christ that it gives you an opportunity, it gives you an excuse to have a spiritual conversation with them, to pray for them, to reach out to them and invite them to join us for worship. Now, I've heard that pushback. You know, we'll tell people, hey, who are you sharing Christ with this week? We'll ask people to text if you shared Christ with somebody this week. And you know what sometimes people push back? Oh, the church just wants to grow. Oh, they're just interested in being a big church. And, um, and I'll be honest with you, I hear the criticism and I'm thinking, okay, Brett, you've never had a pure motive in your life. Just be honest. But if you think that's the primary motive, then I wonder if you really understand what it's like to be lost. Jesus didn't weep over Jerusalem because he wanted to have a bigger church because he was driven by a big ego. Do you know what it means to be lost? I buried a good friend this week, Patrick McGinnis. Patrick died of cancer. His son, Nicholas, age 30, died of cancer about a month earlier. Ten years ago, Patrick was not ready to face cancer, let alone the death of his son with cancer. He didn't know Christ that closely. 
He didn't have his own sense of assurance. He would talk about, well, I hope God takes me to heaven when I die. But because people prayed for him and loved him and discipled him, by the end, Patrick was saying, I know, I'm ready. I know where I'm going when I die because of Jesus. At the beginning, years ago, Patrick was like, I have my faith, but it's private. I don't share my faith. Once Patrick came to love Jesus, you couldn't keep him from sharing Jesus with others. Patrick would talk about win-win as he did last fall up on stage here. He'd say, if God cures me of cancer and I get to live longer than I'm supposed to, that's a win. I have a lot to live for. But if God takes me to heaven, that's a win too. He says, I can't lose. It's win-win. And Patrick was able to face his cancer and his son's cancer with a sense of victory because he knew Jesus. Because he was walking with Jesus as his good shepherd. He had the comfort of Christ as his good shepherd. His hope was in Christ and in eternity as a good shepherd. But you know, there are a whole bunch of people that knew Patrick well that were not where he is spiritually who literally did not understand Patrick's perspective. Didn't understand his strength. How we can have a win-win approach. And they've been devastated by the death of Nicholas. And they still haven't been able to deal with the passing of Patrick with win-win. We are surrounded by people who are walking through life like sheep without a shepherd. And they're gonna face cancer or maybe depression or the death of a career, the death of a dream, or the death of a child. And if they don't know Jesus as their good shepherd, it will be devastating for them. So when I say, who are your lost friends you're praying for? Who are you sharing with? Who are you making a disciple? It is not about a bigger church. It's about loving people to know Jesus and his hope and his grace and his confidence. Jesus said, go and make disciples because he loves people. Do you? Do I? Write down, I will. Who are you praying for every day? Who are your five friends or so that you pray for to come to know Christ? Do you hear God's voice calling you to your friends? Come before winter. There's one more voice that calls us. That's the voice that calls us to come to Christ before winter. The voice that calls us salvation. Whenever Christ calls people, there's always a sense of urgency for action. At the end of the greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus says the difference between the wise and the foolish person is not hearing the word both hear the word, it's just the fool hears the word and takes no action, but the wise person hears and takes action. Whenever Jesus spoke, he expected action, so we're not surprised that when the apostles speak, they pick up on this urgency. The first day of the church, people say, what do we need to do to be saved? And the disciples don't say, we have this 35-week class for you to come to that we can talk about. They don't say, oh, be patient with yourself. They say, 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Those of you who think, I know that I need the salvation in Jesus, but I don't think that I'm ready. I want to know a little bit more. I want to be a better person. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that that day, 3,000 were baptized. It's no surprise then when we read through the New Testament, read the book of Acts, and there's an urgency to baptism. The Ethiopian is on a trip, and he hears about Jesus and salvation and baptism, and he says, hey, there's water. Can I be baptized right now? And Philip says, yeah, and they're baptized that minute. The Philippian jailer, it's the middle of the night when he surrenders to Christ. And in the middle of the night, they don't say, hey, let's wait till the morning. Let's wait till the service in three weeks from now. The middle of the night, he and his family are baptized. The apostle Paul is being discipled, being led to Christ, And the one discipling him says, why are you delaying? Get up, be baptized, washing away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So the Bible says, now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness. Some of you hear God's voice calling you very clearly right now. You know sin brings death. You know Jesus is Savior who died for you, who can free you from sin and give you forgiveness and freedom. You believe that Jesus is the good shepherd and Savior. Now the voice to Paul is the voice to you. Why are you delaying? Get up. Be baptized. Calling on the name of the Lord. Now is the accepted time. What do you do? David Brainerd was a great missionary to Native Americans. On one occasion, he was witnessing, he was sharing Christ with a chief. This is uh, 18th century. This Native American chief is really wrestling with God like never before, and David Brainerd understands it. And he takes a stick, and he draws a circle around him in the soft grass, and he says to the chief, before you step over that line, decide. One way or the other, decide. Now, why that sense of immediacy. It is because David Brainerd understood that God's voice with that man at that moment was, was probably clearer than it had ever been before. And that if he said no to God at that moment, he might never say yes to God again. If he missed that moment, he might never be so close again. I draw a circle around where you are right now. Do you hear God's voice calling you to change, to repentance, to come to others, to come to salvation? Before you walk out of that circle, decide. It's your life. It's not mine. It's not a personal thing other than I really care about you. You know, other than, you know, I don't want you to go through life like sheep without a shepherd. Do not say tomorrow. Now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. Come before winter.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for Paul's example, for your Holy Spirit that was speak to us right now. Help us, Lord, now to obey. As sure as the law of gravity is the truth that you are God over all and this life is short and only what is done in obedience for you is worth anything. God, I know that you want to give people peace and joy and purpose today. And I also know it's a spiritual warfare and there's fear in this room. There's fear of loss. There's fear of stepping into the unfamiliar. There's the fear of being rejected as Paul and Peter and the first century Christians were rejected. But we know it is true, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So Lord, lead us down right paths right now to follow you through Christ I pray. Amen.